Welcome to the Live Your Dance Podcast. My name is Molly King, and I'm a former corporate working girl turned author, dancer, and coach. Each week we come together to celebrate someone who has found their metaphorical dance and listen to their insights in order to inspire you to find and live your dance. Thanks for tuning in and joining me today. Now, let's dance. Hey guys, I'm so excited to be back in the studio and I have a much better audio setup as I'm sure you can tell. And I'm going to do things a little differently this week. I'm going to do a solo episode and this is one that I think will be pretty interesting to a lot of you. Um, I recently had a chance to work with some kids and we were working on leadership. And one of the things that was really fun actually was that we sat down and had kind of a story time with them and read to them out loud and I think everyone just loves being read well I mean I love being read too so I hope you all do because I'm gonna read to you a little bit and then talk to you about an article that I have loved for several years it's called the common denominator of success and it's written by or it was actually delivered as a speech by Albert E. Gray in 1940. So it's one of those like classic wisdom pieces. And I just, I think it should be more widely read. And I'm really excited to dive in. So if you want to know what the common denominator of success is, listen in and we will dive into it. All right. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I'm really excited about this. And this is an article, like I mentioned, that I have read several times. And it just came to me that I think you guys would really appreciate it as well. So let me just set the stage. It's 1940, and we're all listeners at a life insurance conference. It's a I don't know if any of you do sales meetings, but back at the company where I used to work, they made a big deal out of sales meetings and brought everyone together, and there was always a great speaker or something very inspiring about marketing or about, you know, going after it. So imagine you're sitting there, and they bring in Mr. Gray. He's one of the officials of the Prudential Insurance Company, and he's been there for over 30 years, both as an agent and in the field and as a promoter and instructor in sales development. So he knows his stuff, and he's also a writer and a speaker on life insurance. But regardless of your industry or the field that you're in, I know this will be helpful. So let's dive into it. Grab a cup of tea or coffee, or if you're driving to work, You know, just turn this on and start to listen, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, this is Mr. Gray speaking. Several years ago, I was brought face-to-face with the very disturbing realization that I was trying to supervise and direct the efforts of a large number of men who were trying to achieve success without knowing myself what the secret of success really was. And that naturally brought me face to face with the further realization that regardless of what other knowledge I might have brought to my job, I was definitely lacking in the most important knowledge of all. 
Of course, like most of us, I have been brought up on the popular belief that the secret of success is hard work. But I had seen so many men work hard without succeeding, and so many men succeed without working hard that I had to become convinced that hard work was not the real secret, even though, in most cases, it might be one of the requirements. And so I set out on a voyage of discovery, which carried me through biographies and autobiographies and all sorts of dissertations on success and the lives of successful men, until I finally reached a point at which I realized that the secret I was trying to discover lay not only in what men did, but also in what made them do it. I realized further that the secret for which I was searching must not only apply to every definition of success, but since it must apply to everyone to whom it was offered, it must also apply to everyone who had ever been successful. In short, I was looking for the common denominator of success. And because that is exactly what I was looking for, that is exactly what I found. But this common denominator of success is so big, so powerful, and so vitally important to your future and mine that I'm not going to make a speech about it. I'm just going to lay it on the line in words of one syllable, so simple that everyone can understand them. The common denominator of success, the secret of success of every man who has ever been successful, lies in the fact that he formed a habit of doing things that failures don't like to do. It's just as true as it sounds, and it's just as simple as it seems. You can hold it up to the light, you can put it to the acid test, and you can kick it around till it's worn out, but when you're all through with it, it will still be the common denominator of success, whether you like it or not. It will still explain why men have come into this business of ours with every apparent qualification for success and given us our most disappointing failures, while others have come in and achieved outstanding success in spite of many obvious and discouraging handicaps. And since it will also explain your future, it would seem to be a mighty good idea for you to use it in determining just what sort of future you are going to have. In other words, let's take this big, all-embracing secret and boil it down to fit the individual you. If the secret of success lies in forming the habit of doing things that failures don't like to do, let's start the boiling down process by determining what are the things that failures don't like to do. The things that failures don't like to do are the very things that you and I and other human beings, including successful men, naturally don't like to do. In other words, we've got to realize from the start that success is something which is achieved by the minority of men and therefore unnatural and not to be achieved by following our natural likes and dislikes, nor by being guided by our natural preferences and prejudices. The things that failures don't like to do in general are too obvious for us to discuss them here. And so since our success is to be achieved on the scale of life insurance or whatever industry you are in, let us move on to a discussion of the things that we as life insurance men and women don't like to do. Here too, the things we don't like to do are too many to permit specific discussion, 
but I think they can all be disposed of by saying that they all emanate from one basic dislike peculiar to our type of selling. We don't like to call on people who don't want to see us and talk to them about something they don't want to talk about. Any reluctance to follow a definite prospecting program, to use prepared sales talks, to organize time, and to organize effort are all caused by this one basic dislike. Perhaps you've wondered what is behind this peculiar lack of welcome on the part of our prospective buyers. Isn't it due to the fact that our prospects are human too? And isn't it true that the average human being is not big enough to buy life insurance of his own accord and is therefore prone to escape our efforts by making him bigger or persuade him to do something he doesn't want to do by striking at the most important weaknesses we possess, namely our desire to be appreciated? Perhaps you've been discouraged by a feeling that you were born subject to certain dislikes peculiar to you with which the successful men in our business are not afflicted. Perhaps you've wondered why it is that our biggest producers seem to like to do the things that you don't like to do. They don't. And I think this is the most encouraging statement I have ever offered to a group of life insurance salesmen. But if they don't like to do these things, then why do they do them? Because by doing the things they don't like to do, they can accomplish the things they want to accomplish. Successful men are influenced by the desire for pleasing results. Failures are influenced by the desire for pleasing methods and are inclined to be satisfied with such results as can be obtained by doing things they like to do. Why are successful men able to do the things they don't like to do while failures are not? Because successful men have a purpose strong enough to make them form the habit of doing things they don't like to do in order to accomplish the purpose they want to accomplish. Sometimes even our best producers get into a slump. When a man goes into a slump, it simply means that he has reached a point at which, for the time being, the things he doesn't like to do have become more important than his reasons for doing them. And may I pause to suggest to you managers and general agents that when one of your good producers goes into a slump, the less you talk about his production and the more you talk about his purpose, the sooner you will pull him out of his slump. Many men with whom I've discussed this common denominator of success have said at this point, but I have a family to support, support, support and, and, I, and I have to have a living for my family. Isn't that enough of a purpose? No, it isn't. It isn't a sufficiently strong purpose to make you form the habit of doing the things you don't like to do for the very simple reasons that it is easier to adjust ourselves to the hardships of a poor living than it is to adjust ourselves to the hardships of making a better one. If you doubt me, just think of all the things you are willing to go without in order to avoid the things you don't like to do. All of which seems to prove that the strength which holds you to your purpose is not your own strength, but the strength of the purpose itself. Now let's see why habit belongs so importantly in this common denominator of success. Men are creatures of habit, just as machines are creatures of momentum. For habit is nothing more or less than momentum translated from the concrete into the abstract. Can you picture the problem that would face our mechanical engineers if there was no such thing as momentum? 
Speed would be impossible because the highest speed at which any vehicle could be moved would be the first speed at which it could be broken away from the standstill. Elevators could not be made to rise, airplanes could not be made to fly, and the entire world of mechanics would find itself in a total state of helplessness. Then who are you and I to think that we can do with our own human nature what the finest engineers in the world could not do with the finest machinery that was ever built? Every single qualification for success is acquired through habit. Men form habits and habits form futures. If you do not deliberately form good habits, then unconsciously you will form bad ones. You are the kind of man you are because you have formed the habit of being that kind of man. And the only way you can change is through habit. The success habits in life insurance selling are divided into four main groups. One, prospecting habits. Two, calling habits. Three, selling habits. Four, working habits. Let's discuss these habit groups in their order. Any successful life insurance salesman will tell you that it is easier to sell life insurance to people who don't want it than it is to find people who do want it. But if you have not deliberately formed the habit of prospecting for needs, regardless of wants, then unconsciously you have formed the habit of limiting your prospecting to people who want life insurance. And therein lies the one and only real reason for lack of prospects. As to calling habits, unless you have deliberately formed the habit of calling on people who are able to buy but unwilling to listen, then unconsciously you have formed the habit of calling on people who are willing to listen but unable to buy. As to selling habits, unless you have deliberately formed the habit of calling on prospects determined to make them see their reasons for buying life insurance, then unconsciously you have formed the habit of calling on prospects in a state of mind in which you are willing to let them make you see their reasons for not buying it. As to working habits, if you will take care of the other three groups, the working habits will generally take care of themselves because under working habits are included study and preparation, organization of time and efforts, records, analyses, etc. Certainly, you're not going to take the trouble to learn interest-arousing approaches and sales talks unless you're going to use them. You're not going to plan your day's work when you know in your heart that you're not going to carry out your plans. And you're certainly not going to keep an honest record of things you haven't done or of results you haven't achieved. So let's not worry so much about the fourth group of success habits, for if you are taking care of the first three groups, most of the working habits will take care of themselves, and you'll be able to afford a secretary to take care of the rest of them for you. But before you decide to adopt these success habits, let me warn you of the importance of habit to your decision. I have attended many sales meetings and sales congresses during the past 10 years and have often wondered why, in spite of the fact that there is so much good in them, so many men seem to get so little lasting good out of them. 
Perhaps you have attended sales meetings in the past and have left determined to do the things that would make you successful or more successful only to find your decision or determination waning at just the time when it should be put into effect or practice. Here's the answer. Any resolution or decision you make is simply a promise to yourself, which isn't worth a tinker's dam unless you have formed the habit of making it and keeping it. Duh. And you won't form the habit of making it and keeping it unless right at the start you link it with a definite purpose that can be accomplished by keeping it. In other words, any resolution or decision you make today has to be made again tomorrow and the next day and the next and the next and so on. And it not only has to be made each day, but it has to be kept each day. For if you miss one day in the making or keeping of it, you've got to go back and begin all over again. But if you continue the process of making it each morning and keeping it each day, you will finally wake up some morning a different man in a different world and you will wonder what has happened to you in the world you used to live in. Here's what has happened. Your resolution or decision has become a habit and you don't have to make it on this particular morning. And the reason for your seeming like a different man living in a different world lies in the fact that for the first time in your life, you have become master of yourself and master of your likes and dislikes by surrendering to your purpose in life. That is why behind every success, there must be a purpose And that is what makes purpose so important to your future. For in the last analysis, your future is not going to depend on economic conditions or outside influences of circumstances over which you have no control. Your future is going to depend on your purpose in life. So, let's talk about purpose. First of all, your purpose must be practical and not visionary. Some time ago, I talked with a man who thought he had purpose, which was more important to him than income. He was interested in the sufferings of his fellow man, and he wanted to be placed in a position to alleviate that suffering. But when he analyzed his real feeling, we discovered, and he admitted it, that what he really wanted was a real nice job dispensing charity with other people's money and being well paid for it along with the appreciation and feeling of importance that would naturally go with such a job. But in making your purpose practical, be careful not to make it logical. Make it a purpose of the sentimental or emotional type. Remember, needs are logical, while wants and desires are sentimental and emotional. Your needs will push you just so far, but when your needs are satisfied, they will stop pushing you. If, however, your purpose is in terms of wants and desires, then your wants and desires will keep pushing you long after your needs are satisfied and until your wants and desires are fulfilled. Recently, I was talking with a young man who long ago discovered the common denominator of success without identifying his discovery. He had a definite purpose in life, and it was definitely a sentimental or emotional purpose. He wanted his boy to go through college without having to work his way through as he had done. 
He wanted to avoid for his little girl the hardships which his own sister had had to face in her childhood. And he wanted his wife and the mother of his children to enjoy the luxuries and comforts and even necessities which had been denied his own mother. And he was willing to form the habit of doing things he didn't like to do in order to accomplish this purpose. Not to discourage him, but rather to have him encourage me, I said to him, aren't you going a little too far with this thing? There's no logical reason why your son shouldn't be willing and able to work his way through college just as his father did. Of course, he'll miss many of the things that you missed during your college life, and he'll probably have heartaches and disappointments. But if he's any good, he'll come through in the end just as you did. And there's no logical reason why you should slave in order that your daughter may have things which your own sister wasn't able to have, or in order that your wife can enjoy comforts and luxuries that she wasn't used to before she married you. He looked at me with a rather pitying look and said, But Mr. Gray, there's no inspiration in logic. There's no courage in logic. There's not even happiness in logic. There's only satisfaction. The only place logic has in my life is in the realization that the more I'm willing to do for my wife and children, the more I shall be able to do for myself. Imagine, after hearing that story, you won't have to be told how to find your purpose or how to identify it or how to surrender it. If it's a big purpose you will be big in its accomplishment. If it's an unselfish purpose, you will be unselfish in accomplishing it. And if it's an honest purpose, you will be honest and honorable in the accomplishment of it. But as long as you live, don't ever forget that while you may succeed beyond your fondest hopes and your greatest expectations, You will never succeed beyond the purpose to which you are willing to surrender. Furthermore, your surrender will not be complete until you have formed the habit of doing the things that failures don't like to do. The end. Ugh! Albert Gray is so flippin' awesome! Ugh! Oh man, so every time I read that, I just get so on fire about life and about what I can change or what I could tweak in order that I make those things that I don't want to do, which we all have, but is there a way to make them more bearable so that I can do them longer, so they can be more sustainable in the process? Tony Robbins talks about this and he talks about scoring. So with things that we don't like to do, it's, well, he talks about a movie, And he says, if there's no music, the movie is not as powerful. But as soon as you add the musical soundtrack and you have the composer, you know, emoting through the musicality of of what he's written, then a movie becomes so visceral, so emotional. We become so engaged in it. And when we do that for ourselves in achieving our goals, it can become like like Mr. Gray was saying, it creates momentum. So Tony Robbins uses the example of working out and say you don't like working out, which, you know, for many people that's the case. And sometimes for me too. 
And so he talks about what can you do to make it more fun? (laughs) What can you do to make it more sustainable? Can you add music to your workout? Can you find a buddy or a friend that you, you like to catch up with and go, you know, talk with them as you're doing a run or a walk or whatever it is. Um, and one woman, she liked to read trashy novels. So she said if she could just get on a bike machine and get her novel, she could go for an hour with no big deal. So what are the things that you're doing that you don't like to do? And take a look at them right now and see what could you tweak and it doesn't have to be a big change, but what could you tweak in order to make it a little more enjoyable or bearable even? This is something that I think a lot of us work on. Anyone who's a successful driven person typically has goals or likes to set goals or has some ritual. And I myself have my own ritual. I even sell a goal setting kit on my website. And I work with my clients on not only setting goals, but then keeping them accountable. And that's that's a big thing that I think a lot of us use. And I love that Mr. Gray talks about this in creating a goal that is not logical, that reaches something deeper inside of us. Because what I have found personally is that if I have something driving me that is bigger than myself, then I can get through those slumps. Here's an example for you. Have you read the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? If you haven't, I highly recommend it. This man survived not one, not two, but four death camps during the Nazi rule in Germany, including Auschwitz. And he's a logotherapist slash psychotherapist, so he has a very interesting take on what it took for some men to live and others that let themselves die in the process of being at these death camps. And what he found was, he quotes Nietzsche, I think I'm saying that right, Nietzsche, um, where he says, with a big enough why, a man can get through any how. So when we create a goal that has a big enough why that reaches us so far deep in our gut or our soul or our heart, whatever it is for you, that it can drive you through the hardest moments, that's when we know we found a big enough reason. And I'll bring it back down to a kind of simpler level, but I know that a lot of Americans and a lot of people seem to struggle with their weight, and I have too. And I've been up and down and everywhere, and I was, you know, I bodybuilded for a time, and I competed, and so for roughly 12 weeks, I was stricter than strict. I never knew that I could be this accountable, that I could trust myself that much to actually eat the food that I said I was going to eat and not cheat and eat ice cream on the side or sneak candy or whatever it was. And for those 12 weeks, I made incredible process. I dropped 10% body fat. I put on a lot of muscle. I looked great in my bodybuilding bikini and my heels and the whole deal. And as soon as I got off the stage, you know what I was doing? Eating Oreos. I was eating milkshakes. I was gorging myself on all the food I had missed. And the thing was, my why only brought me to the stage. It didn't take me any further. So even though I made all that progress, within a few months, it was back on. And granted, I had more muscle in general, and I was able to, you know, my bigger goal was to 
try out for the volleyball team because I had been cut the year before in college and I made it that year and I made it the following year and I was able to play out my four years of college volleyball but the weight didn't go back to where it was during bodybuilding and that was because it was only a very short-term vision a very short-term goal and now I've found that there's a larger picture and I've found some more momentum in actually becoming fit and enjoying the process and I think it came for a number of reasons and I wrote them down I made sure that I recorded them because there was a definite shift and for me it was not only finding the freedom of being able to move more and be more active and what that allowed me to do and see but a lot of it was tied into the fact that I loved who I was doing it with and I I recently started dating a guy who's very active and works a ski patrol position in the mountains and so I started getting involved in hiking up on skis in the morning and skiing a lot more and then hiking and I already liked trail running but now it was like it wasn't just trail running for me to lose weight to whatever it was actually that I was enjoying the outdoors and I was doing with some with someone that I really cared about and had fun with and the more fit I got the more I was able to enjoy and the more freedom I felt and dominion and just feeling comfortable in my own body and being able to go explore and all of a sudden it was like I unlocked something and the whole world now was a playground and it just my eyes were open to such a different way of viewing it all of a sudden I wasn't exercising just to lose weight I was exercising to explore and to play and to express my full potential and to explore my potential there's a fun book that I read a while ago it's called what I know now letters to my younger self and in it the woman who played Claire Huxtable in the Cosby show her name is Felicia Rashad she talks about how her mother instilled in her this idea that it's her duty to explore her potential And I love that idea that each one of us has a duty to explore the full range of our palette, if you will, the whole extreme from one side to the other, and not just live these monochromatic lives, but to really, and I'm now thinking of not only live your dance, but live your full dance, live your whole dance, the whole enchilada of your dance, whatever it is, but just explore and have fun in that process and even if that quote-unquote fun is doing the things you don't like to do but in the name of exploring what you can do it becomes so much more intriguing and exciting and no longer are you working out just to hit the gym and check it off on your box but if you're training to go hike the John Muir Trail, which I did a couple years ago, or, you know, running, training for a marathon or training so that you can do something. I find that I'm so much more willing to get up on those rainy days and actually get out there than I am when I'm like, eh, well, I suppose I could hit snooze another time and no one will really know. And that's what Albert Gray is talking about too. That habit of making a promise to ourselves and actually keeping it. That is a muscle. And that is something my mom actually talked about. When we exercise that muscle of keeping our word to ourselves, it becomes stronger. 
And it's interesting. I've noted that those times when I let myself go and I, it's, it's little things and it all adds up. It's the sleeping through my alarm. It's the saying I'm going to eat healthy and then sneaking like candy or little treats here and there. And then, you know, saying I'll be on time and I'm a little bit late or, you know, saying, oh, I was stuck in traffic when really I was just, you know, on social media and I wasted too much time and now I'm late. It's those little things that add up and they erode at our character. They erode at our word and our integrity. And I've really been working on being fully aligned with what I say I'm going to do and actually doing it. And that's not to say I'm 100% perfect because I'm not for sure. And I have a lot of room to grow. But I do appreciate and acknowledge the fact that I'm making progress. And that makes me excited. And so when I say I'm going to do something, if it's getting up at 545 and getting a run in before I have to, you know, report to my station, whatever that is at work or, you know, working on the podcast or whatever it is, those little moments where I actually keep my word to myself, I like to think of it as investing in myself. And anytime I say something and I do something else, that's spending money. And so the more I can invest in myself, the long-term benefits, the compounding interest that I'm building on myself is incredible. It's exponential. And it makes a difference and it ripples out in every area, every aspect of our lives. But every time we say we're going to do something and we you know, change our mind and we're not being fully honest, that's not to say you can't change your plans. But in a way that is not having integrity, that's when we start to spend our money. And that's when we start to see the effects of overspending. So ultimately, it comes down to our relationships with ourselves. And if you look right now, if you look at the way you speak to yourself, if you look at the way you treat yourself, and at the way you keep your word to yourself, or if you don't, just take a little notice. Just notice right now your sheet. And how are you in each of those areas? How are you doing? And if it's not where you want to be, don't get mad at yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Just notice. And maybe if you're a journaler like I am, you can start to write those things down. Okay, here are the things that I'm doing that I don't appreciate about myself. And here are the things that I do do on a regular basis. These are my habits, like Mr. Gray talked about. These are the habits worth keeping. These are the habits not worth keeping. And then how can I tweak those? Here's an example. There's an exercise I really like to do every now and then called the perfect day exercise. And I talk about it in my book. And basically you write down, you know, what is your ideal day? And I like to get very specific. You know, I wake up early at this time and I get a workout in and I eat something healthy. And then I, you know, have time to create and to write and do things before I engage with social media and the outside world. And then, you know, maybe I have lunch with girlfriends and then maybe I do some work where I'm actually working with people or I'm workshopping or I'm leading something with other people. And then I have a great dinner with my boyfriends, family, whatever. And then I go out dancing. Like those are kind of the elements of a perfect working day for me. And then I did what was really fun. Actually, it wasn't really fun at the time, but (laughs) I took note and I took stock of what is my current day? which at the time I was working corporate 
I was waking up late every day saying I would work out, but I never did in the mornings because I was too tired. So I'd wake up late. I was already stressed. I may or may not get a shower in before rushing out the door and grabbing food, which may or may not be healthy, go to work. And from the get-go, I was in reactive mode. So I would sit down at my desk and people were already throwing things at me. And, you know, I was it was just not a good recipe for the day. And then all day it felt like I was sprinting and I could never catch up. And that feeling was so exhausting after a while. And I would leave the office late because I was trying to make up work. And I'd hit the gym to get that workout in like I said I would. And then I would eat dinner probably around 8.30 or 9. I would throw laundry in or do like maybe just sit in front of the TV just to have a moment of like, ugh, okay breathe and then I'd go to bed a little bit too late and the whole process would start over again and what I noticed through doing that exercise of writing down my ideal day and then writing down my actual day I noted that one thing could change the entire situation of my current day and that is waking up with my first alarm that's all it took all I had to do was wake up when I said I would wake up And that changed my entire day. I would wake up early. I got my run in. I came home. I had time to make an awesome green smoothie and read something inspirational. Had a shower. I got to work even a little early so I could plan out my day and organize and even, you know, answer some emails before people got in the office. And then I was on the proactive side of my day instead of the reactive side. And that changed my whole day. And then I finished work at a reasonable time, maybe six o'clock. And then I had free time. Like, what a concept. And I remember one night I went to the, I lived in Santa Barbara at the time. And I went to this fresh produce market right next to my house before it closed. Because look at that. I was home early. I got a mango. I love mangoes. And it was perfectly ripe. And I went to the dog park which happened to be on the bluffs overlooking the ocean and the sun was setting and I just sat there by myself enjoying the breeze and the sunset and my mango and I was like look what happens when I wake up with my alarm I mean it's amazing and it's only one thing so I encourage you and I invite you to go through that process write your ideal day write your current day and look at what what's one thing, one or two things that you could tweak that could change the entire day. And that's what Albert Gray is talking about, the habits that we create, which is just a muscle. And the more we exercise them, the more effortless they actually are. And then keeping that word to ourselves. And then being willing to do the things that failures don't want to do, which is wake up early. Or work a little harder or get to work a little bit earlier or whatever it is but what are those things for you sit down and write that out right now or if you're driving just pause me for a minute and think about what are some of the things that I could do that could tweak my entire day and then how can I make that a habit do I text a friend every day can I call my brother or my sister or my husband or my wife and get them on board and say okay this is what I'm going to try to do And I know I'm not going to do it perfectly, and that's okay, but I want to make progress. I want to see that I'm creating momentum in the right direction now. And behind all of that 
let's make sure that there's a big enough why to drive us past those moments of resistance, the moments of getting uncomfortable or going farther than we want to go. What is our bigger why? And if you don't have a big enough why, then sit down and really think about it. What would actually motivate me? And it's not going to be the dress you want to fit into or, you know, looking good at a certain event coming up. It's got to be deeper than that because as I found out with bodybuilding, you know, I made it to that point. And actually the funny thing was, as soon as I got off stage from doing my, you have to do a model walk in your heels and, you know, strut around each person and you can pick your song. And I think I picked Mission Impossible or something. Um, And so I walked off the stage and I was so proud. I had spent 12 weeks for that moment. And I went back and, you know, high-fived my sister who was also competing with me and her husband who was also competing. And, you know, I had Oreos tucked in my bag so I could enjoy them. And I started eating them and then realized that we were being called out on the stage for our, you know, to announce the placements. So I was still needed on stage. Like, I was so ready to be done with this, which makes sense. But the thing was, my why was definitely not big enough. And not until recently have I found a why that seems to drive me more than, you know, sleeping in does. So find that for yourself. And remember, too, that it's not just about the goals. It's not just about checking off like, okay, cool, I did a marathon or great, I wrote a book or whatever it is. But it's about who you become in the process. A lot of my goals I've set because I want to be a woman capable of achieving those things. So it really isn't about the end result. And I've found actually that I'm much more detached from my end result, but I'm much more engaged in the process because in the process is where the alchemization is actually taking place. And that's where our changing is, and that's where our growth is. It's in the process. It's not in the result. So you may or may not be the top producer of your company, but if you're creating habits that push you and that are nudging you in the direction of becoming a better salesman, then you are becoming a better salesman, and that's the point, or, or whatever the endeavor is. But remember, it's not about the goal. It's about who you become in the process. And I'll leave you with these last words as a reminder from Albert Gray. Any resolution or decision you make is simply a promise to yourself, which isn't worth a tinker's dam unless you have formed the habit of making it and keeping it. And you won't form the habit of making it and keeping it unless, right at the start, you link it with a definite purpose that can be accomplished by keeping it. In other words, any resolution or decision you make today has to be made again tomorrow and the next day, and the next, and the next, and so on. And it not only has to be made each day, but it has to be kept each day. For if you miss one day in the making or keeping of it, you've got to go back and start all over again. But if you continue in the process of making it each morning and keeping it each day, you will finally wake up some morning a different man in a different world. And you'll wonder what has happened to you in the world you used to live in. The reason for your seeming like a different man living in a different world lies in the fact that for the first time in your life, you have become master of yourself 
and master of your likes and dislikes by surrendering to your purpose in life. That is why behind every success there must be a purpose and that is what makes purpose so important to your future. For in the last analysis, your future is not going to depend on economic conditions or outside influences of circumstances over which you have no control. Your future is going to depend upon your purpose in life. And on that note, I will sign off. Tune in with me next week. Thanks again for listening. Well, there you have it. Thanks again for listening and be sure to like, share, and comment on the podcast or around social media. Hashtag live your dance and look forward to more episodes coming your way. Have a great day and be sure to live your dance. you guys oh i'm so pumped